And while you have your Psalter hymnals in hand, I invite you to turn to the back to Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 27. That's on page 884 in the back. If you're visiting with us in our evening services, we often go through uh, what we believe together as a church, looking at one of our three forms of unity, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgian Confession, and the Canons of Dort. We've been working our way through the Heidelberg, and here we're on Lord's Day 27, and our focus will be on uh, question and answer 74, page 884. And we'll just confess together question and answer 74. That's going to be our focus. So Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 74. I'll say the question and we'll let us say together the answer. And so, dear Christians, should infants also be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. And they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. And to see this in part in God's word, I invite you to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts is in the New Testament after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you'll come to the book of Acts. And our focus will be verses 38 and 39. But for a little bit of context, I want to begin reading uh, in verse 29. So this is Acts 2. Our focus will be verses 38 and 39 as we tie that in with some other scriptures. But for some context, I'll begin reading in verse 29. Our Heidelberg Catechism is a wonderful summary of Christian doctrine and a helpful teaching tool. But what we're reading now is the very word of the Lord. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of it. Jumping in in Peter's sermon, he says here, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on an oath that he would place on one of his one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off 
for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of God. Well, have you ever prayed to the Lord uh, for a sign? Maybe when you were going through a tough time in life or you were at the crossroads, uh, maybe you prayed to the Lord for a sign to guide you. When you were looking for a potential spouse or maybe considering a job opportunity or a move or something in life, you you asked the Lord for a sign to, to let you know what his will is for your life. Or maybe you ask for a sign that would assure you that God is with you and that he loves you. In baptism, as we've been learning, uh, God speaks to us through an unambiguous sign that communicates to us his presence and his promises that surround our life. Uh, In baptism, God not only speaks to the individual that's being baptized in baptism, but he speaks to the whole covenant community who gets to witness the sacrament. And what is God saying? Uh, when I was uh, converted in the church, I was uh, a Baptist. And when I was a Baptist, the, the emphasis in the Baptist church was not so much on uh, God speaking to us, but on the recipient of baptism speaking to God, you know, speaking their testimony or, or speaking of their promise to follow the Lord. Uh, however, when we look at baptism in the scriptures, we see it is primarily a word that God speaks to us, uh, speaking to us of his promises. As we've been learning in the Heidelberg already up until this point, uh, baptism is what we call a means of grace from God to us that encourages us and that it's meant to strengthen our faith in Christ. In baptism, God makes promises. And children, you know what promises are, right? They're words of assurance that something will come to pass or that you're going to do something, right? Mom or dad, I promise to clean my room today. None of us, whether we're children or adults, are perfect in keeping our promises, right? But the word of God shows us God is a promise-keeping God. God is faithful to his word. And today, as we look at Acts, we want to see God's promises and how they connect to our baptism. And we're going to see three things from the word of God today. We'll see first the nature of God's promise. Second, we'll see the recipients of God's promise. And third, we'll consider our response to God's promise. So first, the nature of God's promise. You read here again in verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. What is it that we want to learn about this promise? First, it's an ancient promise. This promise stretches all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. For example, in Genesis 12, God made this promise to Abraham. I will bless you and I will make you a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God not only spoke this promise, but he confirmed this promise by formally making what we call a covenant with Abraham. What is a covenant? A word we often hear in a reformed church. Uh, If you're learning the children's catechism, children, maybe you know the definition. What is a covenant? It's a relationship that God makes with us and establishes by his, or guarantees by his word. And here with Abraham, God in Genesis 15 makes a covenant. And in the world of covenants in the Old Testament, lesser kings would often pledge their allegiance to the greater king. 
right? They would come before the great king and they would pledge their faithfulness to a great king. And you know what they would do in this covenant ceremony to show their devotion? They would bring a sacrifice. They would cut that sacrifice in two and kind of like this, they would make an, an aisle with the pieces on both sides. And the lesser king would walk through the middle of that sacrifice and would swear what's called a self-maledictory oath. An oath that says, If I'm not faithful to my word to you, great king, let me be like these slaughtered animals on the ground. In Genesis 15, what's amazing about the covenant ceremony is Abraham is put to sleep. And in a vision, Abraham sees God walking through the animal pieces. He sees God making a promise. If I am not faithful to my promise to you, Abraham, let me be like these slaughtered animals on the ground. This is a covenant that is gracious. It's not only an ancient promise, but it's a gracious promise. Romans 4, verse 13, the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would inherit the world, that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In Genesis 17, after God promised Abraham this blessing, after God made the covenant, in Genesis 17, he gave him the sign of circumcision. Abraham was to be circumcised in his flesh, and he was to circumcise his children even before they professed faith and knowledge of God's covenant. This is a gracious and this is an unconditional covenant that God makes. So much so that even when the law of Moses came 430 years after the promise to Abraham, it could not change that original promise God made to Abraham. That's Galatians 3, verse 17. That's good news because it means that the unfaithfulness of Israel, God's covenant people, ultimately couldn't abolish God's promise. Old Testament Israel, in fact, when they sinned, they did not appeal to the covenant that they swore at Mount Sinai about their faithfulness, but they appealed to the promises of God. All the way back to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, they appealed to God's unconditional covenant promise and covenant of grace. And so this is an ancient promise. This is a gracious promise. And finally, this is a Christ-centered promise. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Speaking of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the amen to all of God's promises. And here in the book of Acts, we actually are coming to a great turning point in the entire salvation story of Scripture. There's a transitioning happening here from the Old Testament to the New The four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all focus our attention on what? Jesus and his ministry giving special attention to his death on the cross, right? That's the majority of their teaching. And that's what we call in theology, redemption accomplished. That's the four gospels, redemption accomplished, focused on those words of Jesus from the cross, those victory words, it is finished. But here in the book of Acts, what do we see? We see now... Redemption applied to the nations that God came to save. Here in the book of Acts, the risen and exalted Christ 
is preached as the one who has fulfilled the promises of old. That's what we're reading in Acts 2. Jesus fulfilled the scriptures, the words of David that we heard this morning, the words of David here from Psalm 16. It's all pointing to Jesus. And now that he is raised, now that he's ascended, now he is coming to baptize the nations of this earth, this nation and all others, with the Holy Spirit and with the promises that he gave. See, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's just one story of salvation, one promise from old to new, and one Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the hero of the story. Here we see, just as a bit of a teaching point, one of the key differences between a Reformed church and a Baptist church, our Baptist brothers and sisters, uh, tend to equate the promises made with Abraham They tend to equate those with the promises given to Moses or with the law of Moses. And therefore, they see the new covenant in Christ as essentially different from the Old Testament as a whole. The new covenant in Jesus is contrasted often with the covenant God made with Moses. Read the book of Hebrews and you could see that. But the new covenant or the New Testament is never contrasted with the promise made to Abraham. And that is because the new covenant in Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. It is the amen to all that God swore to our fathers of old. The new covenant is a new administration of that one covenant of grace where sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In the Old Testament, and in the new. And this is why in the New Testament, Abraham is often celebrated as the father of our faith. That essential promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 17 is echoed here in our text in Acts 2.39, where God says, I will be a God to you and to your children. And so this leads us to our second point then. We see the nature of God's promise. It is ancient, it's gracious, it's Christ-centered. But who are the recipients of the promise? That's our second point. Who are the recipients of this promise? Notice you see kind of three categories of people. For you, for your children, for all who are far off. First, Peter says, for you. And speaking primarily here to Israel, right? They were the first recipients of the preaching of the gospel by the apostles, right? When God, uh, when Jesus gave the the great commission and when he spoke after, right before his ascension, he he said it's going to begin in Jerusalem, right? It was to them that God made the promises during the time of Moses. So for you, the people he's preaching to. But he says it's for you and it's for your children. And that's why we say these words in Heidelberg 74. Should infants be baptized? Yes, because infants as well as adults are in God's covenant and are his people. Now, it's without dispute, right, that children were included in the covenants in the Old Testament, right? Genesis 17, very clear. Circumcision uh, given to Abraham and to his children. In fact, in every covenant of the Old Testament, covenants with Abraham, Noah, with David, in every covenant, God included the children of believers. So the key question is, when you come to the new covenant, the key question is this. Has God changed in his determination to include children in the new covenant? Notice here, the new covenant is even more inclusive. 
It's even more expansive. Notice for you, for your children, for all who are far off. In other words, it's for Jew and for Gentile. It's for men and women. It's from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so wouldn't it be odd in this inclusive and universal covenant for God to now restrict children and forbid those who were once included? You might ask, is that how the New Testament portrays the children of believers? No, instead we see what? We see first Jesus welcoming the little children and blessing them. Matthew 19, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. The Apostle Paul explicitly refers to children in his letters and as part of the covenant community who have covenant responsibilities within the church of Jesus Christ. And notice in Ephesians 6, Paul doesn't make a distinction between those children who have made a profession of faith and those children who have not made a profession of faith. But he says to all children in Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Here in our text, we get an explicit affirmation that the children of believers are recipients of the promise And therefore, we confess that they ought to have the mark of God's covenant and of his promise. Now, maybe the question is on your mind. How does this promise or how does this? uh, Yeah. How does this promise relate to an infant that is yet to profess faith? What does this promise have to do for them if they can't really take hold of it yet? A couple of things that we need to say that we see in the catechism as well. First, in baptism, Children are initiated into the Christian church and are partakers of God's covenant blessings. They get to share in the blessings of the word of God, uh, the sacraments to a degree, right? And to Christian teaching. Just as circumcision initiated them into uh, the covenant community in the Old Testament, we confess that baptism serves a similar function. When a child is baptized, we might say it's the beginning of their life of discipleship. He's all of an old uh, church historian says that baptism is the presupposition of all Christian discipleship. Jesus said in the Great Commission, go into the world, make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded. And so children of believers are to be raised as disciples of Jesus, right? We don't wait to do certain things with our children, you know, before uh, we begin to teach them about the things of God. We teach them to pray. Uh, We teach them to read the scriptures. We pray with them. We pray for them. We sing with them, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We call them to faith in Jesus Christ. Second, in baptism, God pledges himself to our children. The Lord says, I will be your God and you will be my people. In our individualistic culture, we tend to view baptism primarily as our pledge to God. We view it as our time to pledge devotion to the Lord. I will serve you, God, and follow you all of my days. And no doubt, especially for an adult who's experienced God's grace, that is an important thing. But in Scripture, baptism is primarily about God's pledge to us to use the words of one of our baptism songs the lord says i will guide your feet in holy ways i will shine on you through your darkest of days 
I will uphold you until your life is past and bring you home to heaven at last. God is the initiator. God gets the first word and he dedicates himself to us in the waters of baptism. As we declare we love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. And what a glorious picture of salvation baptism is. When we were there, helpless, little infants, perhaps, with nothing to offer God but our sin, he came and he pledged his love for us. He came and showed us grace. That's Romans 5. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so as children grow, they're to be taught by their parents and by the church that just as surely as that water goes over their body to wash away their physical impurities, God promises to wash away all of their sins if they trust in Jesus by faith. The third thing about the promise in its relation to our children is that they are set apart as holy. We don't baptize because we know someone is inwardly holy. We don't baptize a child to magically make them holy. But like children in the Old Testament, children in the New Covenant are distinct from the unbelieving world if they belong to at least one Christian parent, the Word of God says. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians seven fourteen that the children of at least one believing parent are not unclean, but they're holy. You know, when a baby is born in the hospital uh, today, the nurse usually puts a little tag around their foot, right? Letting uh, us know which family they belong to, right? It says Kern, it says Ventura, it says Decker. It shows you that this child belongs to this family. And that is what God does to us in the waters of baptism. He, he comes and he says, this one belongs to me in this world. This one is part of my family. I am their father, and this one will be to me a son and a daughter. Beloved, this is, this is our identity, right? We're in a culture where people are struggling to find their identity and who they are. And in baptism, God is reminding us that he defines who we are, that he calls us to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And this identity, this union we have with Christ as we've been hearing, it's not just for those moments that we see on Sundays. It's for the Monday through Saturday Christian life. Listen to Paul in Romans 6. Paul says to the church, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You hear what Paul's saying? He's saying, have you given thought to your baptism and how it relates to your practical Christian life on Monday? You have been united to Jesus and this affects everything about who you are, right? Do you struggle against that old sinful nature that is still in your heart? Does your conscience and Satan accuse you daily that you just fall short of all of God's standards? Paul reminds us of this important truth in Romans chapter 6, that when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, you died with him. When Jesus was buried in the tomb, you were buried with him. 
And when Jesus walked out of that tomb on the third day in a mysterious way, you walked out with him into newness of life. You've been united to Christ in baptism. Listen to this. Belgic Confession 34. I love this. It says, Baptism does not only avail us at the time when the water is poured upon us and received by us, but also through the whole course of our life. When that old man tonight or tomorrow comes knocking at the door of your sinful heart and you are tempted to walk in that old way, you could preach to your own heart, I have been baptized into Jesus Christ. No, I've been united with Jesus in his death. I've been separated from sin and I'm raised with Jesus to newness of life. I'm a baptized Christian. That's what Luther did. And so we hear the nature of God's promise. We hear of who receives this promise. Finally, beloved, what is the response to God's promise? Well, children, along with adults, must say with those here in Acts chapter 2, what must we do to be saved? And the same words that Peter proclaimed and the apostles proclaimed all throughout the book of Acts come to all people, baptized or not, repent and believe in the gospel. You see, baptism initiates us into the people of God. It sets us apart from the unbelieving world, but there's actually a warning in baptism. Just as circumcision was a sign of initiation, it was also a sign that someone would be cut off from God's people if unbelief remained in the heart. The Jews of old were called not only to circumcise their flesh, but to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts that defiled and dirty part of their hearts was to be cut away. And the word of God says, if someone was not circumcised in their hearts, then their physical circumcision counted for nothing. Listen to Romans chapter 2. Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. See, likewise, in water baptism, we are called to take hold of the promises of God by faith. If someone grows up, whether a child or adult who's been baptized, and they grow up and they reject the promises of God until death, they could only expect judgment. Just as the waters in Noah's day flooded the earth and destroyed the wicked, so too the waters of judgment will fall upon all those who reject Christ. And that's why the the pastor, the preacher to the Hebrews, warned the covenant community with these words. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. He goes on, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? This verse is not talking about someone losing true salvation, but it's speaking about a person who was outwardly identified with the covenant community, with a level of communion with Jesus through the preaching, through prayers, even through the sacraments. They never received those things personally by faith. 
And so the gracious and loving call of God to each one of us here today who are listening is that we would not be indifferent to Jesus, but that we would today continually take hold of the promises, the free offer that God gives to us in the gospel. The moment that we trust in Jesus, he will wipe away all of our sins. He will make us completely new. He will fill the home of our hearts with his promised Holy Spirit. How can we be assured of that promise? It's because the scriptures declare that Christ was cut off for us and Christ was baptized into the judgment of God at the cross. At Calvary, Jesus was cut off from all comfort. He was treated as defiled and dirty as our sins were laid upon him. He was baptized into the judgment waters of God's wrath so that we might pass safely through the judgment into newness of life. And whether we are children here today or whether we are adults, that is our comfort. That is our comfort. That if we trust in Jesus, baptism reminds us, and declares to us, the judgment has already fallen. And in Christ, we've made it safely through all by his grace. Thanks be to God. And this gives us finally an encouragement in our efforts as parents and as a church. Just a word of encouragement. This encouragement reminds us that ultimately the salvation of our children is not based upon us, but it's based upon God. God places a weighty calling upon us as parents and as a covenant community. In baptism, we make vows, don't we? We make vows before God. Even the church makes vows to care for children. God uses the ordinary means, beloved, the ordinary means of discipleship in the home and in the church to communicate his grace, right? Teaching them, praying with them, modeling Christian behavior before our children. God uses all of this to show his love and grace to our children. But we all stumble and we all fall. We all feel, don't we, in our hearts, how much we fall short of God's standards. But thanks be to God, the results are not ultimately up to us, but they're up to our faithful God. And so we are called to parent by the promises of God, to plead those promises of God over our children, even those children who have gone astray. And we're called to praise the God of promise, the God who is faithful from generation to generation. He loves us and our children even more than we do. He set his love upon us in eternity past. In time, he sent Jesus for us when we were weak and helpless. And so today, let us not put our trust in man. Let us not put our trust even in a sign. But let us put our trust in our faithful, promise-keeping God. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, indeed, you are faithful. And you are a covenant-keeping God from generation to generation. And thank you, Lord, that we don't have to just wishfully think that, but it has been confirmed for us in Jesus Christ. He is the yes, and he is the amen to all of your promises. And indeed, his resurrection from the dead assures us that these are not vain words today, but these are life-giving truths that you communicate to us, even from the risen Christ who is seated at your right hand. And so, O oh Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief today. 
We pray, Father, again, that you would seek and you would save your wandering sheep, even those that you drew near to in their baptism. Father, we pray that you would show yourself faithful, that you would show yourself faithful to your promises. And we pray that these wandering sheep would not spurn Jesus Christ, would not be apathetic or indifferent, but Lord might have tender and loving hearts towards the Savior, desirous to follow him again. Open blind eyes, open deaf ears, glorify your own name again in showing yourself the God who is faithful and mighty to save. Hear our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.